This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. The Energy Pipeline is your lifeline to all things oil and gas, to drill down deep into the issues impacting our industry. From the frack site to the future of sustainability, hear more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of oil and gas. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Pipeline. I'm your host, Jordan Yates, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Wayne, who is also in relation to our guest, David Holt, which is the president of the Consumer Energy Alliance. Now, Wayne is also a part of the CEA. He is a member of the board of directors there. So these two go way back, which I think is going to make for a great episode. If you guys are listening in podcast version right now, you're going to not be able to tell, but they are both smirking a little bit. So uh, get prepared. This is going to be a fun episode. Um, I just want to kick it off by you guys saying hello. Say hello to the listeners. Wayne. Well, hello, everyone. It's great to be back as co-host of my first session uh, with an invited outside speaker. So we'll say welcome to David Holt. Hey guys, David Holt here, Wayne Jordan. Good to be with you guys. We are so happy to have you. Um, I'm just going to get right into it and ask you a little bit about your background and what is CEA? What is the Consumer Energy Alliance? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, thanks. So, Consumer Energy Alliance, we're a 17 year old organization, hard to believe at this point, but it's really founded on the premise that energy impacts the entire U.S. economy. So how do we create this kind of horizontal trade association that welcomes everyone that uses energy in all forms? So manufacturers, the farming community, the transportation community, distribution, plastics, hospitals, restaurants, individual families. So we've grown into kind of a consumer advocacy organization that represents 550,000 individuals around the country and almost 400 kind of corporate entities around the country, the vast majority of whom don't produce one molecule of energy. So they're using energy. So uh, Mm -hmm. these these groups are coming together to say, okay, how can we set public policy at the federal level in Washington, D.C., at the state level, and even now increasingly at the local level that ensures that everyone has the ability to have affordable energy, gasoline and electricity, uh, reliable energy, you know, that's a big issue, increasingly big issue. We had federal uh, announcements earlier before the summer that said as much as one-third, sorry, as much as two-thirds of the country could be at risk for brownouts and blackouts. Um, so affordable, reliable, and environmentally responsible energy, that's the big third tenet of, of our philosophy and, and our approach and what our members are looking for. So how do we continue to push the envelope on making things better, faster, stronger, cleaner, but ensuring we have reliable and affordable energy. So that's uh, that's our mission, and um, increasingly active in uh, obviously in Washington D.C. But we have active campaigns on. Um, we have 12, I think, campaigns covering 22 states now, 
from mm -hmm. oil and gas to wind and solar to carbon capture to pipeline and infrastructure to hydrogen uh, to fuel cell technology to renewable natural gas to electricity and power gen um, and transmission. So all those things are covered by our organization kind of on a daily basis. Being the president of all of that sounds incredibly stressful. <laughs> you cover a lot. That is that is insane. I, I didn't realize the reach of it. Um, Wayne, can you tell me a little bit about, from your perspective, what it means to be a part of the CEA and your involvement there? Well, yeah, I you know I come at it being that I work for Caterpillar in the service sector of the upstream oil and gas industry, I tend to come at it from that wedge. So very often the oil and gas industry has struggled historically to communicate with consumers because our approach tends to be you know, very factual, very scientific, very data-driven, very engineering-focused. And I, I think the balance that we get with our participation with the CEA is to reach those consumers in a way that they understand it, that they relate, and that they can understand that what we do at Caterpillar fits into this bigger energy landscape, and we're, we're part of that. And, um, you know, I, the CEA looks at us as a large consumer because our customers mm -hmm. consume a lot of, of fuel in the machines that they operate. Um, they look at us as a consumer of natural gas because we power a lot of the equipment that moves natural gas in the pipeline infrastructure. We have a large electric, uh, you know, electric power footprint with on-site generation and, and power generation. So we, we bring this voice, this unique perspective as both of a participant in the upstream oil and gas service sector economy and then as a large energy consumer. And CA helps us find that balance and lets us help reach people on their terms to understand how what we do needs to fit into the overall energy mix. Yeah, it sounds like a very natural fit to have you a part of that and Caterpillar, and it, it just seems like there's a lot of synergy there. Um, something that has sparked the idea for this episode has been the um, the talk of IRA implications and how that is affecting like things being electrified and what it means for us in the energy sector. David, can you give us a little bit of insight on what the IRA is and what um, how it's affected you guys at CEA? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the Inflation Reduction Act, and it was a uh, an act of Congress that was signed by the president uh, late last year, late in 2022, that really, more than the Inflation Reduction Act, it really is an, is an energy bill. So all aspects of the energy economy were impacted. A lot of incentives were given out uh, by Washington, uh, creating a pathway toward increased utilization of wind and solar. Uh, it created a pathway to create a market and an economic mechanism to kind of price carbon. So carbon capture, carbon sequestration is now a business. And it's I'm, I'm, I'm here in Houston, and it's a, a booming business here in Houston and around the country. Uh, it created a pathway toward more transmission, particularly as it relates to renewable energy. Um, so, you know, every aspect of kind of our burgeoning, developing, growing energy economy uh, was was impacted. Uh, one of the things that's a concern for us and should be a concern for all of us is, you know, oil and natural gas with this administration is kind of seen as a, a forgotten entity when it's the vast majority of the energy that we rely on on a daily basis. And if you look at it, about 84% of all our energy is, is it comes from oil and natural gas. And that's down from about 
85% 10 years ago. So as we continue to grow wind and solar and renewables, oil and natural gas are still our lifeblood. Uh, and we need to recognize that. And uh, we need to make sure that we're creating the proper pathway to uh, allowing oil and gas to continue to be that dominant part of our energy mixture while we diversify, while we, sure we ensure we have energy security and, and all the other things. But again, it goes back to that affordable, reliable energy part of it. And um, while we support strongly wind and solar, if you don't have backup power and wind, the wind isn't blowing or the sun's not shining, <laughs> then you're not providing electricity. And you know, we, in, in a hot summer day, we'll be, we'll be annoyed. But in a very, very cold winter environment, if you don't have power, people get injured, right? So you need to make sure we have that power and that, that, uh, that power mixture. And that's an ongoing part of the discussion. The IRA didn't really talk about that. Uh, but all the other forms of energy now are full speed ahead. So David, how does the current infrastructure of the oil and gas industry either support or hinder the, adop the adoption of these electrification type of technologies? You know, it's... it's it's a great question. It, it, it's kind of complementary, if you will. Um, there's a few things that, and CEA did a study that's available on our website, consumerenergy.org, that looked at the unintended consequences of EV mandates, which really you can extend to electrification. So, you know, as we add more molecules to the grid, we're not replacing energy. We're just moving where that energy is, is burned or created to a different place, right? So whether it's going to be a natural gas power plant um, that is providing electrification or that's going to be a renewable power plant from wind or solar that has a backup power with nuclear or natural gas, you're still going to need power generation. Something is burning, something is moving to create the electricity. So what does that mean to the grid? First question, um, as we grow our reliance on the grid with electrification, with more electrified products like uh, your stovetop or your um, hot water heater or your dryer or things that rely on natural gas in your home or your gas-powered vehicle, your internal combustion in engine that is now going to be converted or, or moved to electric, an electric vehicle, um, while more and more of us are relying on the grid with data centers, with our devices, with our um, computers and everything else, we're seeing more and more demand now than we've ever seen before. But in the next 10 years, as this electrification notion becomes more and more prominent, uh, there are a lot of concerns about grid management. There are a lot of concerns about whether or not all these renewable projects that are in the planning stages are actually going to be built and finished. A lot of concerns, are we going to bring the transmission from those renewable projects, from the, where the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, to the cities? A lot of opposition to transmission. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of concerns about, with EVs, do we have the refueling stations? Uh, are we creating the infrastructure that's necessary for public acceptance? Uh, a lot of concern about critical minerals. You know, from cobalt to lithium and all the in between that all goes into wind and solar and EVs and our smartphones and all the rest, where is that coming from? Right now, the dominant resource for all those critical minerals is China. 
So a lot of folks are worried that the U.S. energy policy is really kind of a Chinese-dominant energy policy in the next few years. So we've got to look at all these as we put more and more pressure on our electricity infrastructure. Um, and our concern, and we've done several reports on this, that, that many, many policy leaders in, say, New York and California and a couple other states are making this mad rush to electrification uh, on the auspices of cleaning our environment, but they are risking the grid, they are risking affordable energy, they are risking reliable energy and brownouts and blackouts. And on balance, they're not providing the environmental benefit that they are claiming. So we need to really look at this and be, be sensitive to kind of those three pillars of affordable, reliable, and environmentally responsible energy. So as we move to electrification, on balance, all that said, some electrification, energy diversity, all that is a good thing, and we should continue to kind of examine it and consider it and move in that direction. But like everything else in life, you have to be balanced and thoughtful about the approach. So, David, yeah. you talked about charging stations, and I think yep. that one's evident. You've alluded a couple of times to grid infrastructure. Um, can you illuminate on the grid more, and do you see other significant areas of infrastructure that need to be upgraded or need to be modified from what really the current path is? All, all of it. I mean, it's a, the simple answer is everything needs to be upgraded. You, um, we, we have a molecule problem, you know, bringing the molecules from where the energy is created to our homes and offices and buildings. Uh, that's increasingly going to be, that's it. It's going to be an increasing problem as we go forward. You know, all the, independent service operators that examine kind of a, from a quasi-governmental standpoint, examine the electricity grid in the Northeast or the Midwest or the Southeast or here in Texas at ERCOT are all kind of saying the same thing. You know, these grids are becoming um, uh, increasingly under pressure. Um, you know, Texas, I think, has already had seven all-time record demand days this summer. So we've broken the record six times, seven times already this summer. Uh, we've had a very hot summer here so far in Texas, and that's obviously putting a lot of strain on the, on the, the grid here in Texas. We're seeing that around the country. Um, what we're seeing more and more reliance on ele our electricity, our power. Uh, we wanna be comfortable homes. Uh, we wanna make sure that our buildings are sufficiently powered and then again we're all using our own individual devices and we have all these bitcoin centers that are a huge huge draw on our power grid so um you know some of the concerns now are if we need if we're going to meet the renewable energy standards with wind and solar that we have set for the nation we're going to have to quadruple quadruple the amount of transmission that we already have in this country so what does that mean from a right-of-way standpoint? What does that mean from an eminent domain standpoint? Um, our consumers are largely across the Midwest going to accept that amount of transmission moving across their backyard in some cases. And we're already seeing in, in Indiana and Iowa and Minnesota and Michigan and some other states uh, a little bit of pushback. So it's a little bit of a not in my backyard with renewables as well. So we have to ensure that we have the wherewithal and the consumer acceptance that's going to allow these these grid improvements and this infrastructure to, to be put in place. And then from a pipeline perspective, 
you know, we all know there's been a lot of opposition to natural gas pipelines for a number of years. We need more natural gas pipelines. Natural gas and oil will be a dominant part of our energy mix for a long time coming. So we need to make sure we're building those out. Carbon capture, carbon pipelines, CO2 pipelines are going to be increasingly a part of our energy mix. We've got to get those built. Hydrogen pipelines, which is a utilization for natural gas and an ultra clean low emission uh, meeting our net zero challenges through hydrogen is, uh, is another infrastructure component that was also recognized in the in Inflation Reduction Act. So all those things go into it and then you have terminals and you have other substations and you have all the rest that have to be added. Um, so in our modern day and age of everyone having the ability to say no to everything, um, we're really putting ourselves in a situation where we're going to have a, a large section of the country that's going to have to say yes to a lot of things. Kind of all of us are going to have to say yes to a lot of things and make sure that we, uh, we meet these energy challenges because the, the downside is, is you, you, we just don't want a blackout in the dead of winter in the northeast states or in Texas like we had in 2021 when many of us were without power for 48 hours living in 20-degree temperatures in our homes and you know us uh, the, the, the folks here that live in texas can't handle that at all so uh there's it a lot that has to go into fun. it <laughs> yeah no that that was a very bleak week yeah. of trying to stay warm uh i realized that you know having one fireplace just doesn't solve it all and if you don't have one at all then you're definitely out of luck yep. but I, I i do like how you mention sort of the gap between where the lawmakers are pushing for these regulations, but then there's kind of the missing aspect of, okay, how are we physically going to change the grid and all these different components? Uh, you told me beforehand you have a background in law, and I'm curious, this wasn't a prepared question, but just something I thought of, is there like a group of more technical people that are helping these lawmakers be like, yeah, this can work or no, it can't like, is there somebody actually keeping them in check when they make these laws or how, do you know about the, the sort of checks and balances of that side of it? Not enough. Uh, you know, a lot of our policy with energies being led by a narrative mm -hmm. uh, and it, a lot of it is the, the climate change narrative, right? We are, we're in this uh, existential threat. And if we don't, um, you know, make fundamental changes and some say absolutely ban fossil fuels, oil and natural gas in the next five years, it's going to be doom and gloom. So some of our political leaders are, are pushing their energy policies based on that notion. Uh, mm -hmm. I disagree with that notion, but um, of the, 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 the haste that it needs to occur. Um, so there are a lot of government officials. There are a lot of experts in this. There are a lot of folks that are appointed to positions that are in positions of authority. And then there's the broad set of the energy industry and other groups like Consumer Energy Alliance that are helping to kind of lead a, an approach that makes sense, that allows for a stair-stepped process to diversify our energy mix, that allows for a mm -hmm. process to continue to make oil and natural gas cleaner so that we can meet our goals of better emissions. And it's not just carbon dioxide, it's volatile organic compounds, it's nitrogen oxides, it's sulfur dioxide, it's all the things that create smog in our cities and asthma and those that are at risk. All those things need to be part of our effort to clean up 
our environment. And, and the United States, frankly, is doing the best job in the world already. Mm-hmm. So we have to, it, there needs to be more, Jordan. It's a great question because we've seen in New York and New Jersey, just to pick on two states, this rush to appease a part of our political world uh, with with the notion that we've got to we've got to make these changes in the next five years to an all electric grid, to banning natural gas hookups in homes and businesses, to all EVs in the next five, seven, ten years. When mm-hmm. one, that's not necessary. It's not an accurate uh, perspective. Two, our fear is this rush is actually going to put pressure on the the electric grid, as I mentioned, and on EVs. So if you have an all EV mandate and no internal combustion engines anymore, but you don't have EV charging stations and you don't have the grid that provides sufficient supply to meet our EV requirements, consumers are going to say no to EVs. So we need to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up for kind of a rejection of a, of a new market that um, is being created kind of somewhat arbitrarily by, yes. by elected officials uh, without full understanding of what, what's going into it. So there's a lot of conversation around it. It's a great question. Some are, um, you know, some elected officials say, well, I'm going to vote for this because I won't be in office in five years when the chickens come home to roost, you know? Mm-hmm. And we've actually had that stead, said to us by a, couple, a few elected officials. So it's, it's really about, about us as voters to making sure both the Republican and the Democratic candidate in whatever office they're going to run for understand that we as voters want to ensure that we have affordable and reliable energy while we continue to meet our environmental challenges and that we strongly support oil and natural gas while we support wind and solar and nuclear and hydrogen and the overall energy mix. It's it's kind of taking back that political narrative and providing enough, enough pressure on Republicans and Democrats alike to do the right thing with a overall all energy mix um, because these politicians in some states really need to get get the message and that so far they haven't. I, I love that you look at it as a total energy picture rather than it's oil and gas versus electricity. You're like, they all go together and we can do really well with all of them if we look at it as a cohesive picture rather than them versus us or oil versus electricity because like, where do you think electricity comes from? But I mean, sure, there's there's ways to do it with solar. There's ways to do it with wind. And then there's also, you know, you could do it with gas. But I, I think there's this weird thing happening. And especially me, I'm in my early 20s. And of course, you know, TikTok, Instagram reels, all that's very big. And there's this huge amount of guilt that they put on people who support oil and gas. And it's like this social shaming of, you know, if you don't support all electrification, you're a bad person. And like you said, it starts to affect the elected officials and the decisions they make because they want to get votes off of these arbitrary ideas. And it's like, they think, you know, you hear the term, perception is reality. So if we just all say oil and gas bad, electric is good, like then oil and gas will go away. But it's like, that's not realistic. Like it can't just go away. We can't just fully go electrically. It's not an immediate solution. And I like how you were able to address that it needs to be taken in steps or else it's just not going to work. And then it's all going to fail and they're going to reject every option. So 
think we just need to slow down a little. Like, it's okay. Like, the world is not going to end from pollution tomorrow or in five years. Well, I guess I can't say for sure. What do I know? But my assumption is, is that it won't. Wayne, what do you think about all this? <laughs> well, I, I think I'm aligned with with uh, the, the narrative here, right? Which, which is, a, I think, a positive reaction to this kind of short-term thinking, the short-term discussion that we need to do something to fix this now. Mm -hmm. um, and David, maybe you can comment a bit and build on these thoughts, but you know, energy transition and energy expansion has been going on since the start, right? Yeah. We've been on a rather natural progression towards electrification anyway. We certainly see it, and I know Jordan will get into this other podcast, we certainly see it with our customers that are interested in moving off of a liquid molecule onto a natural gas molecule, they're interested in electrification. So I, I do think there's room here for collaboration with the, with the industry, uh, with regulatory partners, with legislators to understand that, you know, there's a short-term narrative that says we have to do something, but industry is already on this path and is already moving in this direction. So, you know, where are those opportunities, David, for collaboration or for technology to really fit into the discussion? You know, and technology is the key, right? And innovation and technology and, you know, good old know-how and having science meet, uh, allow us to meet some of our challenges. And I, I think when you look at those companies like a Shell or an Exxon or a Chevron um, that have always been kind of been treated as oil and gas companies, they're now energy companies. You know, Shell just bought a, uh, I'm sorry, Exxon just bought a large lithium plant in uh, outside of Dallas, you know, for battery storage. And they're looking at that. Shell is all in on carbon capture. I said Shell, I'm in Exxon. Um, Shell is all in on wind and solar and looking at ways to meet our energy mix from a variety of fashion. And then, you know, several years ago, they were talking about how they were going to transition away from oil and natural gas. Now they're kind of coming back with their new CEO saying, hey, hold on a minute. We're now looking at the overall world energy mix, and we're going to need to continue to develop oil and natural gas to meet our basic needs. Good, honest statement. Um, but all these companies are diversifying. All of them understand not only what the, the benefits of diversified energy means, but their customers want it. You know, uh, the, the, the average American, the average person around the globe that's living at a subsistence level of uh, economic uh, life is looking at ways to diversify our energy portfolio and add add different energy mixes to the, to the, to the table. But you also have about 2 billion people on this planet that are making about a, a 50 cents a day that are trying to get up to that subsistence level of living many of those people are burning dung and wood on a daily basis rather than oil, natural gas, wind, or solar to meet their power needs. So we need to make sure that we're looking at ways. This is a global issue. It's not a U.S. issue. It's a global issue. Um, and when we're talking about you know wind and solar and electrification, we also have to remember I mentioned the critical minerals. Just take cobalt, for example. So 99% of the world's cobalt is controlled by China. The largest cobalt mine in the world right now is in the Congo, a Chinese-controlled mine, and it's dominated by child labor to develop the cobalt that's used around the world. And when you talk about environmental or humanitarian disasters, something that all of us in the world 
need to be looking at, um, and Americans, American political leaders, and others need to be taking a hard look at: Are we are, are we perpetuating this humanitarian crisis by increasing our reliance on energy resources that must have cobalt? Right. We we have to recognize that there are trade-offs in in everything. So the, back to the innovation, ingenuity, technology, there are some technologies that folks are looking at for renewables and battery power and others that don't rely on cobalt, you know, as just one example. Carbon capture. Now that, you know, carbon capture is not new. It's been around since the early 1970s. So it's, it's basically just re-injecting CO2 back into the ground and, and very secure geological formations that can keep that carbon there forever and eventually that carbon solidifies again and maybe we use it for something else like golf clubs or or, um, or we just leave it in the ground. But now that's there. That technology exists. We're capturing it from point source emitters like the steel industry or the fertilizer industry or others that we that want to have their carbon captured and, and injected. Um, and we're looking at hydrogen in various forms which is a not necessarily a new technology, but we're looking at new technological and innovative ways that we can we can convert natural gas into hydrogen to have ultra low emission energy resources that can be used to power the grid, or for vehicles or for other energy resources. So there's a lot going on there, Wayne. Again, it's all integrated in my mind, you know, and and um, there are those companies, smaller companies that are just going to be focused on oil and gas, smaller companies that are just going to be in wind and solar. But there's a lot of integration in all of this, and and I don't know of a company in the in the United States in the energy field that's not looking at ways to do things safer and cleaner, and meeting our environmental challenges. It's really a notion that's shared broadly among the energy industry, and uh, that's that's really a positive. That sounds very promising and optimistic, and I like it because I think when we look at it all together and all the different energy types that you just mentioned that we are working on improving, that it makes me feel very hopeful because it doesn't feel so much like oil versus electricity and things like that. It feels more like we are just improving. It feels more like we're scientists trying to make the world a better place. And I think that's exciting that there's so many options and so many avenues because it gives us the flexibility to figure out what works best. Um, Wayne, I know we're getting to the end of our time. So is there any last questions that you have for David before we have to let him go? Well, I think as we we wrap this up, we started talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which, as David said, is really an energy bill. Do you see it as something that brings more more carrots or more sticks? It feels like business tends to respond better when then there are when there are incentives than than when there's regulatory pressure. I think the IRA brings a bit of both. So maybe just your closing thoughts on on that and how industry can think about taking advantage of some of the incentives uh, that are there. Uh, while fitting into a maybe an enhanced regulatory environment at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a good question, Wayne. I think the 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 act itself was all about the carrots, and you know we've we've seen out of Washington just a lot of money flying flying around the country, uh, which is causing inflationary pressure and all the other kind of economic issues we're dealing with from a broader perspective. But the act itself was a lot of hey, here's money, let's get it spent. How to create tax incentives and other incentives for for various parts of the energy industry to really get rolling. 
And then they had, for the stick side, more ambiguous regulatory to be determined by the various agencies. And that's still to be determined. Um, a lot of those are kind of going through the process and, and uh, you know, the experts at EPA that are looking at, you know, how do we regulate carbon capture? Uh, what's the federal authority there? What's the state rule? I mean, all the states are now looking at, is there a new tax regime for injecting that carbon back? What's, what's in it for the states? What's in it for the local communities? Uh, that's not really, that's an indirect result of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So the, the stick part of it, to my, to my understanding, is still kind of a TBD. Uh, but the carrot in, in literally trillions of dollars in direct investment or tax subsidies and incentives has kind of already occurred. And if you watch the Department of Energy, you watch the Department of Interior, EPA, others, the amount of grants and other government um, uh, offerings that are occurring, uh, I've never seen anything like that before. So there's a lot of things to prop up various parts of the energy industry. Um, and get things moving. But again, that's going to run us into consumer acceptance of transmission lines, grid construction, um, wholesale large you know, wind farms, uh, large multi-multi-acre solar farms, uh, what that does to the environment. You're already seeing some farmers and farming communities kind of push back on the amount of wind turbines and, and solar, solar arrays. So we've got to balance, to get, balance all that again and make sure we're kind of doing it slowly and methodically and, and meeting both consumer acceptance, affordable energy, reliable energy, and meeting our environmental challenges as well. That That is a lot to take in and just prep for. I, I feel stressed right now, like I need to go solve the world's issues. Guys, I hope listening, you also feel that way so we can all get it done together. Um, well, Jordan, but, you, you said you're early 20s, so this you're, you're the target audience. Exactly. Yeah. I know. I just got to go listen to myself talk exactly. and then I'm going to I'm going to go back and listen to this episode because sometimes when I'm recording, I obviously I'm listening while you talk, but then I forget a lot because, you know, sometimes my heart's beating really fast while I record and then I go back and listen to the guests we have on like you and I'm like, gosh, this is so good. Like they said so many good things. So I'm excited that a whole bunch of other people, hopefully my age and anyone else who needs to hear this will get to get the message. I want to end with our new segment called The Drill Down. Uh, the Drill Down is where we just kind of take everything we just talked about and in about a sentence or two, summarize it up, last remaining thoughts, last point you want to make. David, what do you have to say to The Drill Down? I would say this is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating time to be uh, an energy observer. The grid, uh, our, how we get our electricity is going to fundamentally change in the next 10 years. Energy diversity is going to fundamentally change and expand in the next 10 years. So watching this, even as a casual observer, is really going to be interesting. And we're going to go through a lot of machinations. It's not going to be pretty in some cases, uh, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and spending time out of your busy day. Wayne, thank you so much for co-hosting this episode. Wayne, anything else you want to sign off, say goodbye to everybody, how much you'll miss them till the next time you're on? Well, <laughs> I'm going to see David next week. The Consumer Energy Alliance has a board meeting. Uh, still no snappy sign off for me, Jordan. Thanks for having me back and look forward to the next one. Of course, guys. 
As always, I'm your host, Jordan Yates, and thank you for listening to The Energy Pipeline. We'll see you next time. Come back next week for another episode of The Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.